The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guests for this week's CBF podcast conversation are Sarah Stewart-Holland and Beth Silvers. Together, they're the collaborative team of Pantsuit Politics and the co-authors of I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening. Beth and Sarah, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for, thank having, you for us. having us. Now, since uh, the day of our recording is August 12th, one day after Joe Biden announced that Kamala Harris will be his running mate for the 2020 presidential election, quickly followed by Donald Trump's commentary that she's a nasty woman. I think I've got to uh, ask a very important question, which is, you know, your individual take, is is Joe Burrow really going to be the great hope for the Cincinnati Bengals this year, or do you think he's going to be a first-round flop? (laughs) Well, I, I am always cheering for the Cincinnati Bengals, but what I have learned is that we take our hope and we sprinkle in a lot of pragmatism and low expectations so that we can be delighted instead of disappointed, which I think is a pretty sounds good like, recipe for politics, too. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like being a Democrat. <laughs> All right, so let's get to know you, uh, you a little bit better because uh, your individual stories really 
uh, enhances your collaborative work together. Um, so Beth, we'll start with you. You're, you're a graduate of, of Kentucky Law School. You served in legal affairs and organizational development. Uh, you're a professional coach. Tell us a little bit more about you. Sure. I right now wear the, my mom hat 24 hours a day because we are in pandemic time. So I have nine and five-year-old daughters. Uh, Sarah and I host the podcast together. We have our book. We do public speaking. And I also do business coaching based on my time as a lawyer and also as an HR executive in a law firm. I grew up in rural western Kentucky on a dairy farm. And uh, my parents loved cable news as soon as it was a thing. So we talked all the time in my house about current events. And I've never considered myself um, particularly political, but more news driven. And that's how I came into partnership with my former sorority sister, Sarah. Well, Sarah, no threat to you, but uh, Beth is quickly, um, you know, raising up in the status of needing to be my best friend. I also have a <laughs> five-year-old and nine-year-old daughter, and we both agree that Cincinnati chili isn't chili and it's gross. Oh, God, y'all are wrong. Cincinnati chili is good. I, I know think, I'm the only one that, that thinks that some of the time and, and often in crowds, but I really do like it. Yeah. Beth, I think the one breaking point is um, I think you say go Wildcats, and I, I could not be any further from that. <laughs> no, I am I am a diehard uh, Kentucky Wildcat fan. Yeah. Well, we all well, have you can be. It's required here. You can put me in any sports camp you want because I don't give two cares about sports. Football, <laughs> baseball, basketball, I don't care. I like a good sports documentary, but other than that, I'm totally uninvested. Yeah. Well, Sarah, uh, let's move on to you. You're a graduate of American University Law School. You served under Hillary Clinton. You've been a writer, a uh, social media consultant. Uh, let us know a little bit more about you. Well, I always say I'm the political um, side of this pancake. I grew up less interested in the news and constantly interested in um, politics and politicians. I had uh, my paternal grandfather who would let me as a little girl bend his ear about politics for hours um, on trips to the airport to see my dad in California. And it was just something I was always interested in. I majored in political science in college. I went to law school in Washington, D.C. because I knew I wanted to work um, in politics. And so I served on in Hillary Clinton's 2007 presidential campaign. And then I worked um, on the United States in the United States Senate for Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey. Um, I really loved it, but my heart has always been in my hometown of Paducah, Kentucky. And so I moved back to Paducah with my husband in 2009. I was six months pregnant at the time with my first son. Um, then had two more, two more sons. I have a nine and a five-year-old, but they're both boys and an 11-year-old. And um took some time to have babies and um, pursued some parenting blogging and social media consulting. But really, you know, I joke on my parenting blog, I would post a stroller review and then the next day would straight up just like talk about the Syrian civil war. I did not, I did not care. I would, I would talk about um, politics and product reviews back to back without a care. So um maintained that interest, always wanted to get back in politics, wanted to run myself. And so I, I um, ran for my local city commission in 2016, uh, won a seat on the city commission, served a single term, and then lost my reelection. Um, still really thankful for the experience um, of running for office. And that was when I was, do when we, when I was running for office that we launched Fancy Politics in 2015. And it's just been such a 
wild ride, but an incredibly um, life-giving and sustaining work that we do with our community. Fun fact for our audience, uh, Sarah's town of residence, her hometown, is actually home to the National Quilt Museum. It is. We are the quilt capital of the world. Thank you. Wow. I have driven through your town, and when I was doing research into y'all today, I was like, why does that sound so familiar? Oh, I remember making a comment about the National Quilt Museum when I passed it, so... Yeah, quilting is really, we have a big quilt conference and the museum's amazing. Like it's, it's really is, you know, they, they create canvases. They just do it with fabric instead of paint. Like it's, they're such beautiful works of art. So uh, walk us through how uh, you came together to start Pantsuit Politics. Uh, Sarah, we'll start with you. Well, I'm the origin teller. So I'll, uh, the origin storyteller. So I'll Share, we were sorority sisters, like Beth mentioned, and sort of stayed in touch via Facebook, as people do these days. And when I started posting on my parenting blog, um, Beth was in her maternity leave for her second daughter and said, hey, reach out to me on Facebook. We kind of reconnected over natural birth. And then she said, would you ever be interested in a guest post? And I said, absolutely. And she wrote, in particular, a post called Nuance that said, like, hey, there's more to all of us than our social media post. And like, maybe we can see both sides of things and maybe we can um, feel strongly about Cecil the lion, but not believe that those who disagree with us, you know, hate all life. Cause that's what we were arguing about in 2015 was Cecil the lion. Cause we were precious and adorable. Um, and so it was so well re- received and my husband had been pestering me to start a podcast and you should start a podcast. I thought I might want to just interview women in politics from my experiences on Hillary Clinton's campaign and on the Hill. And I kind of played around with that idea. And then when Beth wrote that post, I thought, oh, maybe this would be um, a really fun podcast idea because I knew that we had differing approaches and differing ideas about politics. But, um, you know, I wasn't sure how that would play out in our conversations. And so I called her and I said, let's just do a test run. Let's just have a conversation over the phone. And we had such good chemistry and energy from the beginning. I told her after about 45 minutes, we're not going to talk on the phone anymore unless we're recording it. And, you know, despite the fact that we had not seen each other in person in like, you know, 13 years or something crazy, I think we just kind of left. Um, I look back, I'm so proud of us. We had little babies, so much going on in both of our lives and that we trusted each other to to embark on this endeavor that we thought would probably just be a fun hobby and now has turned into our full-time job fabulous well y'all y'all are generate weekly content really good conversations um you know beth i wonder what's been the most difficult conversation that you've had together i think our hardest conversations are when we try to talk about a particular politician because part of what we do is really flesh out like what is a holistic view of a particular issue. So even if we might disagree on uh, whether this should happen at the federal or state level, or if this should be a cultural movement instead of a political one, we might have those differences, but we almost always find commonalities around values and goals and sort of our vision for what we want the country to look like. When it gets down to especially Hillary Clinton because of Sarah's personal connection to working for her, that's where I feel like there's less room in our discussions. And I think that you see that throughout the country right now. You know, when we have a president who is top of mind for everyone who's so controversial, there's not a lot of room because we we get very wrapped up in the particulars of individual people. And that is a that's a harder discussion. 
As you think back at, you know, all the different feedback, which for y'all, you know, your audience is so diverse because y'all bring that diversity just in the fact that y'all are different places politically, um, you know, certainly with the the party affiliation you have. What's been the most rewarding feedback you've gotten from from listeners for the show? Well, I'll say our party affiliation isn't different anymore. Um, the party shifted on Beth, that's for sure. Um, and so we don't really do the, the bipartisan thing anymore because some of the issues that really spoke to our fundamental values as human beings uh, shifted our conversation. You know, in the beginning, I think it w- we thought like, oh, we'll just we're going to find compromise on all these issues and we're going to see the both sides and the world change. You know, and I think the conversations change and the best feedback we get from our listeners, I think, is their support and allowing us to shift um, their support for Beth changing her party affiliation, their support for us to um, come in and sort of do move away from that, like purely bipartisan model and allow us to, to just move and evolve and, and change as people do. And I think that's what we always wanted to give people a more complicated um, and in-depth version of conversation. And I think the real gift is they've also allowed us to be more complicated in depth people, as opposed to just sort of party stand-ins. Now, last year, um, you released a book together and saying last year, it feels like three years ago since 2019. Uh, that's just what 2020 has done to us. Um, you released your first book together. I, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations. And this book is an invitation to put into practice what you've experienced through your relationship, which is the ability to sit across the table from someone who's diametrically, uh, you know, has different views than you while still treating them like a human being. Um, you wrote, talking politics is a gift to yourself and to the world. Ultimately, politics is really about people. We are meant to hash out how we want to live in community with one another. Um, I wonder if you might share with us, you know, what's been the drive behind um, writing or what was the drive behind writing this book? Um, Beth, we'll start with you. We wanted to step back from what we were doing a couple times a week on the podcast and think about like what what is the bigger thing that we're doing and how is this shaping us as people? How is it shifting our perspective? Uh, How does it influence us as parents and business leaders and community members? And so when we sat down to write, I think you're wrong. Our, our idea was let's try to pull out principles where we can say, this is what we model on our show, but, but let's name it. This is what we're doing. And this is how you can do it wherever you are. Because fundamentally, neither Sarah nor I want at any point to dictate other people's politics. Well, as I say that, probably Sarah would take that sometimes. <laughs> I can hear you, Sarah. I definitely would. I, I do now and then. Um, it is not important to me necessarily where someone is on issues where reasonable minds really can come to different conclusions. Um, but I am concerned that the tenor of our politics has become so ugly, so contentious, so mean-spirited that people we really need in political conversation are opting out. And so with our book, we wanted to just say, it doesn't have to be that way. And here's how you can be part of the conversation in a way that, that feels congruent with who you are and your personal values. Sarah, what about for you? What was the motivation behind writing it? 
Oh, I mean, I think a lot of what Beth said, like we really wanted to give people principles. We saw the um, debate just continuing, or I mean, I don't even know if you can call it the debate, the political environment continuing to degrade. Um, and, you know, I think there's also an aspect of there were people who've always been political who were upset by the polarized environment, but are more comfortable in it because, you know, Beth keeps quoting this great song. You can get you used to anything as in, if it adjusted by degrees. And so like, I think they were like the people who were already in the political environment, we were talking to them to a certain extent, but because they are comfortable in that environment, because they've been in it a long time, that's a tougher audience. I think there was a whole other group in my mind we were talking to, which were the people that were stepping into the political arena for the first time, who felt the stakes rising, who felt like they could no longer be neutral or apolitical. And I really wanted to incur, or who stayed out of it because it was so conflict-ridden. And I really wanted to talk to those people and say, like, we need you here. We need your energy. We need your voice. We need people who don't live and breathe this stuff um, in these conversations. And so writing the book to them, too, I think was part of the motivation. Mm. I think one of the biggest challenges for America is our inability to give any ground to the other side because we want to win. Mm -hmm. And and we don't just want to win, but we want the other side to look like idiots in the process. Um, Yeah. You wrote, uh, we are in a political paralysis because we've decided that every issue is existential. This has resulted in a current lack of progress. Um, Sarah, how did we get to this point? (laughs) How much time do you have? I think, you know, I think there's a lot of cultural and historical trends that contributed to this moment. I think there was the growth of social media that allowed people to be anonymous, that was not um, regulating or policing or even being aware of their platform's impacts in a way that's really responsible as um, corporations. So I think a lot of responsibility rests there. I think that um, there's a move sort of away from this social capital, from church attendance and social organizations and places where we can connect with each other and and build identities outside of just our political parties so that you're more than just a Democrat or Republican beyond your individual roles, like sort of your community label, um, either because you're a a Episcopalian or you're a Kiwanis or you're a member of a bowling league. I just think like losing those connections to other human beings that are driven by our family or friend um, relationships has really driven um, our separation from one another and our willingness to um, be hateful. And I think, so I think that's part of it. I think, you know, rising income inequality um, is a really important aspect of this because for better or for worse, you know, sort of the politics of grievance and um, the shifting demographics in America, all those things, um, put pressure on people and they, they lead people to, um, be afraid and, and live in this sort of scarcity view of the world. And that does not, that leads to tribalism and in-group outgroupism. And so, I mean, I think you see that kind of pressure on people play when they're just looking for somebody to blame for the fact that their life is not what they want it to be. I mean, I think it's, there's just so much of, of these, influences and 
um, factors that it's really hard to just pick one thing. I think it's a, probably a little bit of everything. So data scientists did an investigation into uh, false news and misinformation, and they found was that misleading or false information travels faster, further, deeper, and more broadly than truth. In fact, uh, false news and misinformation is 70% more likely to spread than truth. Um, you wrote in the book, we choose ignorance, we choose indifference, we let people make decisions, we let other people have the control, and then get uh, mad when other people have the control. Beth, why do you think we're so willing to to tune out oppositional thinking? Um, you know, only believing uh, what falls in line with with our particular political party or favorite politician. I think there are a couple of reasons. You know, first, it's just the nature of being human. We want to be right. We want to be affirmed. We want to be validated. Most of us don't get that in enough spaces. You know, we have had kind of some breakdowns in terms of. Um, parenting in terms of our workplace culture, where we're just treated less like humans and more like resources within the workplace. And so there, we're lacking for that kind of affirmation and validation. And as Sarah said, that feeling that we belong here. And so anytime someone says, high five, you're right. And, and being right means you're smarter than all these other people will take it. I also think that because of the way algorithms choose so much of what we see and interact with now, we are fed an increasingly narrow worldview by design. And we don't always know that's happening while we're in it. It's really difficult to curate uh, a Facebook feed or a Twitter feed or an Instagram feed or whatever people younger than me are really into right now uh, that doesn't shrink your understanding of what facts are, of who the truth tellers are, of who is on your side, right? And who respects people like you. And so we try throughout the book and in all of our work to keep a huge amount of grace flowing for people who are spreading misinformation because it's not an individual problem to fix. I mean, when you say something like truth is less likely to spread than lies, well, that, we're all responsible for figuring out a solution to that. We can't just say, I wish these people would do better research. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. So, Sarah, you raised this point earlier that, that people don't realize that they are projecting um, maybe their, their unhappiness with how their life has turned out, their lack of success, or their desire for control. They don't realize they project that onto a political system. And yet, we still have such polarizing political figures in our midst. Um, so how do, how do we, let's say the church, help people see what's going on beyond their dislike or favoritism towards Donald, Mitch, Nancy, or Joe? Um, I'm going to push back ever so slightly. I want to be really careful because I don't, I don't want to create a false equivalency. Um, on the right, there is a growing, particularly nationalistic, racist form of 
political grievance that I think is a brand of toxic that falls way outside the normal, like, well, you like this side and I like this side and this figure is polarizing. Um, and I think the church, if it, you know, sort of plays neutral and doesn't acknowledge that um, they're not the same thing and that truly hateful rhetoric coming from the administration or in sort of the Trumpism form of the Republican Party, if we just pretend like, well, that's politics as usual and don't acknowledge the deep, deep harm that um, certain members of our community feel um, from that particular uh, form of politics right now, then I think that that's that's going to be a a big problem for the church. It's going to make the church seem even less sort of out of touch and um, unconcerned with the pain of the community. And so, I mean, I think that that, to me, the role of the church right now is not to say, oh, there are bigger concerns than politics, but to really um, speak and affirm people's fears and hurt and pain um, within politics to to um, comfort the afflicted and to speak up for the oppressed. I think that that is the you know has always been the role of the church, but is particularly the role of the church right now at this moment in history. Mm. Yeah, and going along the same lines, I think one of the challenge for you know local church leaders who are listening to this, you know, ministers who are trying to address real world issues from the pulpit that for for many, because we are so tribal, um, because we are so faithful to a side, the second that we start using names, people immediately tune out uh, whatever it is you might say, you know, no matter how biblical it can be, no matter how much you point to an example of Jesus, of how that Jesus way is being contradicted by the way that politics is being lived out. So how do you, how does the local church leader navigate that? You know, how how do we how do we have the ability to say this and this person and these things that are being said without uh, causing that person to just immediately shut you out? And maybe we don't have control of that, but Beth, I don't, I wonder if you have some perspective into that. I think it's really difficult. And I think it's a matter of, you know, knowing your congregation and your priorities, because like a lot of topics that church leaders consider, um, congregation is not going to start in one place across the entire spread of the congregation. And you've got to lead people at different rates. You know, if, if I were leading a congregation right now, August of 2020, I think I would be less focused on Donald Trump and more on talking about systemic racism and what the church's role in systemic racism has been, how the church has perpetuated it, how the church can be a healing force around racism. Um, You know, we don't soften people up by going directly to, I think Donald Trump is terrible, or I want you to vote for whomever, right? That that just hardens everybody. And it probably does shut people down. Um, when you ask about the hardest conversation Sarah and I have, it's always about a person. So I wouldn't start with a person. Uh, I might start with a topic where we know, um, looking around, everyone is engaging with that topic in some way. It always feels weird to me to attend a church service after a school shooting, if nothing is going to be said about the school shooting, you know, because that's the kind of story where 
we are all engaged with that in some way. And there is some emotional attachment to it and some need on a human level to process that. And I think that's where we are with race right now. But it might differ community to community. But I would lean into those those topics more than individual people, because I don't think the church exists to tell us who to vote for. I think the church's role is really to keep us grounded in our values and to not treat politics as though they exist in a a container that's separate from who we are and how we live out um, our calling in our lives. You wrote in the book, this is a powerful quote, um, somewhere, somewhere along the way, we decided as a country that we, we don't want to be uncomfortable at any time for any reason. We've made the decision at serious expense. Our lack of desire for discomfort leads to avoiding and trying to escape every problem that doesn't have an easy solution, a clear hero and villain, and a predictable plot that we know will wrap up shortly. You know, America is in a very uncomfortable time right now. Um, mm-hmm where people uh, either ease into the, the lack of comfort and are willing to engage in these conversations or kind of they entrench themselves and cover their eyes to what's going on around us. You know, I guess as, as you are people who often address the matters at hand in, in our country, in our, our communities, you know, what would you suggest to those that want to create healthy dialogue, let's say within a faith community or within their family where they know not everyone sees eye to eye? How, how do we help people to see that um, sometimes our lack of comfort leads to the best solution for everyone? I think I would probably say adjust your expectations. You know, we go in and we say, well, we'll, we'll, maybe we can handle some discomfort, but that's just because we're going to get to the end game and we're going to solve it all. And, you know, I think the more we can understand that, you know, instead of one-off difficult conversations, the work of connecting to other people is never done. And if the goal is to connect with the other person, um, then that's going to require vulnerability, which is uncomfortable. It's probably, you know, it's not going to end up in some neat conclusion wrapped up in a bow where we've all understood each other. You know, there's going to be things we fundamentally can never understand about one another, but it's a willingness to step forward into that connection, even if you can't solve the problem, even if you can't come to a level of um, agreement, even if there's a part of this person that's always going to be frustrating to you. You know, I think that the value in the connection itself, as opposed to seeing the conversation as some sort of means to an end, um, is really sort of a, a helpful way to think about it. And just understanding that it's, that it is hard and it's never over, but that it's really the work we're you know sent here to do. Yeah, if I can just add to that, I I grew up singing in church um, from the time I was like four years old. I was singing solos, and the, one of the main songs that I sang all the time was the song called "He's Still Working on Me." And I went through a period later in life where I thought, "Oh, that song is awful. It made me sound so flawed and broken, and what a terrible message." Um, and then as I stepped back as as more of an adult and kind of matured, I thought, actually. Um, isn't that the call like to Christians to continue to be worked on all the time? And, and aren't I worked on through other people principally? I mean, I think 
that that some of the goal here, we, we approach a lot of these conversations and people come to our book like, just tell me how to get my uncle, you know, on board or tell me how to, to, how to get such and such to stop spreading this kind of garbage on Facebook or whatever. And sure, there's a component of I hope we can influence other people positively. But the more rewarding pursuit and the one that connects more deeply for me with my faith is to allow other people in to change me in positive ways and to refine me and to help me understand myself better. So we, we all know the statistic, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And, and there were many that were, uh, that are dismayed by that fact. And the division within the church over the candidates on that ticket that year is, is just a microcosm of an ever-growing rift within our society and really within many churches. And as we look ahead to November, it seems like no matter who wins or loses, that rift is going to tear deeper and deeper. Um, you know, so what is your message for the church? What is your message for our communities about um, how we step forward with grace no matter who wins in, in November. Um, Sarah, we'll start with you. Well, I really don't, I don't think that the rift has to get deeper and deeper. I think there are so many people in our community that I see those, those peacemakers, the people who avoided the conflict or who, um, you know, maybe cast votes that they regret that are out there doing the work that are starting the hard conversations and connecting with people and saying, um, you know, my heart is broken over this disconnection or my heart is broken because I feel like you don't understand where I'm coming from. And they're just, they're coming back and they're doing it again and again and again. And I know that doesn't bubble up into the headlines, but I really do think that that work is, is going on out there. And I think we always have to sort of look around us and see what's happening or what we can participate in, because that sort of movement, that sort of deep relationship work is never going to show up in the news, but it's just as important. Um, and so I think, I, I guess what my advice would be is if you don't feel like you see that, then create it, you know, like if you feel like there's a fracture in your own family or your own congregation or your own community, then start doing the hard work of showing up and, um, or either just, or even just speaking up about it saying, I see this and I hate it. And it breaks my heart. Um, because I think the longer we, you know, either foist it off on like, this is just a national problem and what can we do? Or um, that we accept that this is just the new reality and there's, you know, we just have to swallow it. Um, the worse it will get, because if we all individually sort of begin chipping away at it and, and pushing back on the idea that like this polarization is here to stay, or there's nothing we can do about it, um, then it will get worse. And I think that there, there are plenty of people out there who are heartbroken about the state of things, don't want to see it get worse um, in November. And I think, you know, for better or for worse, we're not just rolling through this election like 2016. Like so many things are different um, because of COVID-19 and because of the, you know, racial reckoning. We have things are shaking loose. There's a lot of chaos and create, chaos creates opportunity for change. And there are opportunities to say, we've done it this way in the past, but we don't want to do it anymore. Or we've talked about it this way in the past, but we don't want to talk about it like this anymore. And um, I really do believe that's available to us. Beth, what about for you? I agree with all that. You know, I think that sometimes when we say create something, get involved, 
have these conversations, people have a tendency to make that really complicated. It can sound like, oh, I need to start a nonprofit or I need to be elected to some position or I need to fundraise. And we do need people to do those things. Absolutely. And if that's your call, lean into it. We need a lot more people to just talk to their kids about what's going on in the news and ask better questions within their own households and to disrupt uh, the thinking that everyone in this room agrees about something. Uh, we need more people who will step back and say whose perspective is missing in this meeting, who's not represented in this room right now, who has something valuable and important to say. How can we find those people and bring them to this room with us? Uh, there are lots of soft ways to participate because the thing is, we, you know, around an election, it feels like that's the only thing that ever happens, that all is lost if we choose the wrong president. And that's A not what the president is supposed to be in our form of government and be not at all connected to the reality of the thousands of decisions that are made in this country every day that impact people's lives in really significant ways. So we say on the podcast a lot and in the book, find your work to do and do it. And your work doesn't have to look like anybody else's. And I think if you're disappointed with whatever the result is in November, the next right question is what's my work to do now? I guess maybe the last question, as you think about the book, as you think about the podcast, um, what's, what's changed for you in this process? Um, Beth, we'll start with you. Literally everything. I mean, I, <laughs> look, you know, I am an extreme introvert who now hosts a podcast that requires me to be very um, public in my life. And so when you talk about uncomfortable spaces, I'm uncomfortable with this work every single day. And it is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I identified as a Republican when we started the podcast. I identify as a Democrat now and not neatly before or after. I was not a great Republican. I am not a great Democrat. I, I don't um, fit either of those labels perfectly, and that's okay. I am trying to deeply examine the ways in which white supremacy has been just the story of my life. Um, it's miserable. It's no fun at all. Um, and I think it's the most important thing that I can do. When you have listeners from around the country emailing you about just all of the trauma they've endured because of race, because of sexism, because of harassment, and because of socioeconomic circumstances that I have never endured, you just can't help but be changed by that. And so um, I'm really delighted that something about me changes every single day. I hope to always be that way. And I think that my biggest learning is that that, that is the, the work of being a person, you know, just allowing other people in um, in ways that that makes you a lot, a lot different than you were when you began. Sarah? Um, I think... One of the biggest lessons for me is um, the the soft power of influence. I think because I worked on Capitol Hill, because I worked in campaigns, because I ran for office myself, I had a narrative that the only way to really change things or work on the world in ways that you know you thought were important was uh, to really do those black and white actions to be able to to craft the laws or the policy or whatever and 
being in this community and hearing from the people who listen to us and realizing like, no, I mean, when, when it's such a, such an incredible blessing and responsibility to be able to speak to so many people and have your words heard and, and be able to meet people in the moment where they need you. And, you know, seeing the impact of that in our listeners and in their actions and on their lives has been just so incredibly powerful and um, a good reminder to me, I think, you know, I'm an Enneagram one. And so like, I just have this sort of black and white view of the world and, and think there's only often think there's only one right way to do something or to make a difference and realizing like that's, that is not true. And there are as many ways to make an impact as there are people on this planet and I think that that is what sort of our community has, has taught me. And it's been such a blessing. Well, if you want to stay connected with Sarah and Beth, visit pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Of course, follow them on social media. Go out and purchase. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening wherever books are sold. Beth and Sarah, thank you for giving us hope that civility is possible. And thank you for giving us perspective into what relationships over politics can look like. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in the